Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey everybody, I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Koch. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. My guest today, Elaine Storkey, is an English philosopher, sociologist, and theologian. Stick with us. Uh, this is not an all-dark conversation. It's actually a really enjoyable conversation. Elaine is really brilliant. She's a great communicator and a great storyteller. And so sometimes I know that these sort of topics can feel heavy. And of course, uh, for some of you, you should not listen. And I, we talk about that a little bit in the intro. Um, but unless you have personal trauma around this issue, don't be turned off by the fact that it's, you know, a dark issue. Um, it is, it can be overwhelming to learn about this stuff and the scope of it. Um, but there's also uh, some hope and there are some interesting connections to Christianity and the church that Elaine makes. So I recommend, uh, I recommend that you stick with it. I have a little correction, uh, a couple corrections to make from previous episodes Last week, talking about Los Osos, California, I said that it was off the grid. It is not, in fact, off the grid. 
my memory is of the that it was not on the sewer system for decades and decades, including when I was there near there in college 15 years ago or so. So apologies for that. And also, I believe in the episode with Ryan Burge, I mentioned Francis Spufford's book, which I called Unbelievable. It's actually called Unapologetic, and it's a great book. I highly recommend it. And one final note, this uh, interview file somehow got kind of lost in the shuffle for a while. So this was actually recorded about a year ago. So uh, Soren had just been born and, you know, stuff around the, the spiritual abuse research had not gotten going quite as much. So if it feels like this is from a year ago, it is, but it doesn't really affect our ability to appreciate the content here today. So, Elaine, there is a repeated intro of this podcast that plays every, but the beginning of every episode, you haven't heard it yet. But it says that we have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. Now, Christianity explicitly will be making an appearance more toward the end of this conversation, but the modern world is going to be here throughout. We're going to hear about some horrific stuff today. And I'd like to start with kind of the individual psychology of that phenomenon. I personally was not excited to pick up your book, Scars <laughs> Across Humanity, Understanding and Overcoming Violence Against Women. You know what I mean? Like, it's more like taking medicine. It tastes bad, but it's good for you. But I imagine it would be much more difficult to research and write the book than it is to read it, or it is for people to listen to the two of us talk about it as warm people, you know, softening it up. How did you steel yourself for the process of, of writing this book? I'd come across violence against women many, many years before I started writing the book. But largely domestic violence, intimate partner violence, I was called in as a sociologist to try to make sense of some questionnaires that a, a woman's editor of a magazine had put out and she got all these answers. So she sent them in a big block in the envelope and I read through them and couldn't sleep at night. It was just, um, well, I was reading things there from within the Christian community as well that shocked me profoundly. So that goes right back, you know, 30 years. So I've been aware of this. I was aware of incest as part of an incest survivor group that uh, as, as a person who was helping and facilitating those, I've never had any problems of violence at all in my own life. So I was always an outsider looking in until I actually went to the Congo and was surrounded, absolutely surrounded by violated women. And it became something much more personal because you saw the pain, but you also experienced your own vulnerability in a different kind of way from the way I'd experienced it before. So stealing myself has actually been, uh, it was the process of encountering that one had to steal. It was the memories, the flashbacks that you had of, of women's faces and the horror when they were telling their stories, or even women who were brought in who were recently raped. And I found that very, very difficult to cope with. And in fact, that's why it took me eight years to write the book. I had to constantly put it to one side and do something else much more empowering and refreshing and go out with my children and then grandchildren and so on. <laughs> and and I almost never finished the book. Um, and it was only because I bumped into an editor, an old friend of mine at a, at a do where I was speaking. And he urged me to finish that book and get it to him so that they could publish it. I wasn't thinking of that publisher publishing it then. I was sending it to a secular publisher. But he said, look, we'll let you be as Christian as you want to be. Please send it to us. 
So thus spurred on, I actually completely steeled myself. But I probably was very difficult to live with during that period. I was angry a lot of the time. Um, my husband tells me I was very angry and took it out on him because he was a man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I promise to give you permission to be as Christian as you want to be in this conversation as well. Thank you. <laughs> that sounds That sounds about right. I sort of want to alert people to how difficult this is going to be to listen to while also – you know, encouraging them that like, it's worth listening to and you're going to be okay. Although I guess we, we probably should say if you have experienced, if you're a woman and have experienced violence in your own life toward you, you might not want to listen, right? Or you might want to check yourself and make sure you're in a good space to listen. There's kind of a devil's advocate question here about your trip to Congo, which is, well, isn't Congo like the worst possible place in the world for violence against women. And so are we focusing on, obviously I don't believe this, but are we focusing on the worst bit and not taking into account the full picture? We are focusing on a very bad place to go if you're wanting to look at violence against women. But the difference between the Congo and other areas is that it's in your face in the Congo. I mean, you're just going down the North and South Kivu provinces and everywhere you go, there are women being raped, women being used as a weapon of war, rape being violation of women, actually being there to humiliate the men, to conquer the men. And and in many ways, it's just writ large. Other countries, it's still behind closed doors. It's swept under the carpet. It goes on in the judiciary. It goes on in courts and so on. It's not in your face quite so much because it's not so starkly obvious, but it's still there. And the terrible thing about the Congo, really, my experience is the denial that I I came across, especially amongst the, the police and the military. In one occasion, I was actually in Baraka talking to the head of military justice and the chief of police because um, I was president of Tear Fund and we were there to promote a campaign against HIV AIDS and to offer them resources, which were working extremely well. The HIV AIDS epidemic had actually dropped amongst the Congolese soldiers. And I think it's partly in response to them doing careful work with us and with other facilitators. And so during that time when they were thanking me and making very jolly remarks about British footballers and so on, I was praying that I would have an opportunity to raise the issue of violence against women and simply said to them, I wonder if they thought there was any connection between HIV AIDS and it's sweeping through the country and violence against women. And they were horrified, shocked, appalled, became very hostile. And then we had a very long conversation about this. And I realized how, I suppose, how wary they were ever opening up and how much in denial they were. So I think most countries, most people in power are in denial about the prevalence and the extent of violence against women. But my experience, too, is when that denial is faced and seen through, then you can start to make some progress. You write that it's a global pandemic, violence against women. That strikes me as a pretty strong statement. But I imagine you've got some evidence to back that up. What is the evidence for the claim that it really is a global pandemic? Well, globally, one in three women, and that's a fairly high percentage, one in three women have been violated, attacked and brutalized by men 
one in 20 women, and that's a very conservative estimate, have actually been violently raped. And in, in the UK, two women every week are killed at the hands of their partners. And that's only intimate partner violence. If you extend it to a much broader field and look at all the violence that goes on as part of culture, like FGM, you know, <laughs> like abortion, selective abortion, like child brides and the, the violation that goes on to little girls once they're married to much older men and, and all the rest of it, and honour killings that are swept under the carpet. When you put all of that together, you're seeing something pretty formidable, uh, statistically as well as emotionally. Well, you also just inadvertently gave us a little table of contents for the next 40 minutes or so of our conversation. <laughs> I'm not going to have you sort of recount the entirety of your book. We want people to buy it if they can handle it and want more information and want sort of your take on it all. But I would like to spend a few minutes each on these eight forms of violence that you you have a chapter on each in the book. It's really wonderf wonderfully laid out. So the first one is selective abortion and infanticide. I, but first, I, I actually want to ask you about this because it seems an interesting place to start. Maybe you started there because it's the beginning of the life cycle, right? So you're going through, uh, yeah. then you go to general mutation, which is children, you know, right. But also it's, uh, it's a hot button place to start because people have very different intuitions on abortion. But you're not just talking about abortion. You're talking about selective abortion and infanticide. So how is that different from just the topic of my body, my choice or whatever? Yes, it's completely different because, in fact, what's happening in, in India is, is in my body, your choice. And so most of these women are not wanting to abort. There's a great desire to have children and a great desire if they conceive and they've got a, a wee girl in the womb to keep that baby. And it's the pressure from husbands, from in-laws, from the culture around them. If a baby boy is born, there's a massive celebration. I've been there. You know, they kill the fatted calf, everybody's out, there's dancing, there's chanting, there's songs, there's blessings over the child. If a baby girl is born, well, then there's condolences. Nobody turns up. People are very sad, very sorry about it and all the rest of it. And the poor woman feels a complete failure. And because of the dowry, because of the whole system of preferring sons rather than daughters and privileging the men, uh, girls are not welcome. And, of course, the knock-on effect of that is massive. It's massive because it then has repercussions for the whole society as the number of girls proportionate to the boys is dwindling and has continued to dwindle for ages. So it is about abortion. It is about killing the unborn child in the womb. But it's actually a very specific form of abortion. I'm surprised that more feminists don't get very angry about this, but they don't. It's, I'm one of the few women who actually would hold, in, in a sense, of a kind of Christian view on abortion who gets very, very angry about selective abortion because it's so wrong in terms of, of what we're seeing globally. And then I imagine infanticide is when some of those women or men or uncles or whatever actually kill the newborn baby girl so that they don't have to have it as a drain on their economics and whatever, their resources. Yes. Now there's more abortion than infanticide. It used to be the other way around. But because of the prevalence of scanning machines and abortion clinics and so on, you can get rid of the baby before it comes to term. Um, but infanticide means just exposing this child, leaving it defenseless and helpless, um, often in a public lavatory or in a, in a rubbish tip or whatever until it dies. And there is some wonderful work reclaiming these wee ones. And I, you know, I visited orphanages that were packed full of little girls who'd been rescued from various places 
or sometimes put in an alcove outside the orphanage that was visited every day. They tried to trace the parents, but usually didn't manage to succeed. But it was some desperate mother who was being forced to relinquish her daughter very often, or some someone who was snatching her daughter from her and then taking it away would just leave it. And and these wonderful orphanages, often for Christian people, but also Hindu people, were looking after them beautifully and rescuing these girls. I just woke up, and <laughs> I guess maybe in maybe a couple hours ago, hour and a half ago, or whatever. And I am, even though I knew I would have this conversation with you, I don't think I was emotionally prepared to start my day with hearing about rampant selective abortion and infanticide in India. Okay. Just let let just giving myself and our listeners a moment to soak that in. I don't want to get polemical here as a progressive Christian, and also I don't want to be too fast and loose with comparing modern day, pretty like economized and secularized Hinduism, which I think is probably the cause of of this uh, selective abortion, with say biblical Judaism uh, or the the Hebrew people you know, a thousand years before Christ or whatever, but I am seeing a connection. And I think that a lot of times Christians want to think that the way that God set it up in the old Testament or the, or the way that like sort of things were done in the time of the patriarchs where, Oh, we had another girl. Oh, we had another girl. When will we have a son that they kind of want to whitewash it. It's a lot easier psychologically, but I can't help but notice a kind of a, some rhyming here, right? Some sort of, social and moral rhyming and patriarchy rhyming. Do you have anything sort of to say to that? I think nearly all patriarchal societies, especially very old, ancient, traditional ones, had a preference for men rather than women, for sons rather than daughters, for boys rather than girls. And inevitably, the boy carries the family lineage, family name. The girl actually ends up being patrilocal. She leaves her father's family and goes to her bridegroom's family. So in a sense, every girl that's married into that is born into those situations is a lost entity for the family. That was true of, of the ancient Hebrews as well as the Hindus today. But there is a difference. Even though there was a, I suppose, a discriminatory element in the Torah towards men, nevertheless, women were strongly protected, even as, as girls, even as young women. And that was also built in a fundamental respect for life, which I found missing amongst um, many people in India. Fundamental respect for girl life didn't exist. Girls were unfortunate because they were going to be a massive economic liability because the culture wanted sons and because actually not only does the son carry on the family name and, and look after his parents and grandparents when he gets older? He's also, in Hinduist theology, he's also guarantor, guarantor of their eternal kind of um, continuation. So it is wrapped up in the religion, but in a much deeper way than it, than it is in Judaism and certainly not in Christianity at all. Yeah. Uh, so the next step in our circus of horrors <laughs> Is genital mutilation, it's hard not to be a little bit humorous about this because it is so bleak, but so genital mutilation, this this happens, my understanding, and I don't know a lot about this, is there's some sort of belief that like, if we get rid of the clitoris, then women won't be sort of sexual vixens leading the men astray because they won't enjoy sex. And that would be better for everybody. Am I right or am I totally wrong about that? Yeah, you, you are right. I mean, but there's the layers to it in addition to that is the whole idea that women should not be enjoying sexual pleasure. 
it's not very feminine. It's not very womanlike. Um, men are made for sexual pleasure, but women are made to give men sexual pleasure. So that's their role. So if you can eliminate all ways in which women might have sexual pleasure, then you've got them exactly where you want them, namely serving the, the needs of men sexually without having any needs of their own. So that's partly it. It's, it's a denial of sexual pleasure to women. But it's also a guard against promiscuity. I mean, if you've sewn a girl up so that there's nothing there, I mean, you've also taken her clitoris out. You've, you've kind of shrunk into her labia and actually everything inside her is gone. Then you sew her up and there's a tiny hole left for menstrual blood and urine. She's not going to enjoy anything, frankly. But of course, the knock-on effect of that is <laughs> the man isn't going to enjoy very much on his wedding night either because he's got to cut her open in order to have sex. And there were so many myths. I was listening to many young women who have been told a lot of myths about what it's going to be like on their wedding night and find that it's absolutely horrific, absolutely terrifying because there's nothing enjoyable. And then that goes on for the rest of life. It's a, it's a barbaric, brutalizing and um, wicked process, actually, that has no respect for women's bodies whatsoever. And the, the sooner it's got rid of, the better. But it's still very predominant in 28 countries, mostly in Africa. But it's spread across the world as migration has spread. It, it's here in the UK. We had um, a mother was sent to jail just a few months ago because she arranged the cutting of her daughter. And we have to eradicate it and let them know that there's no place for this in any kind of civilized society. There is a connection there to... Basically, the daughters are property, right? And they will be transferred to the husband in exchange for a dowry. And that's kind of the motivating factor behind the general mutilation, isn't it? Yes. And the women fall in line because they believe the myths. Say, I was in Ethiopia with a whole bunch of women. and We were sitting around and I noticed their discomfort in a way that... Yeah, women in their 20s and 30s don't fidget in the UK. They're not always wriggling to find a a comfortable place to sit. They're not always having to get up because fear of bleeding and so on. And I noticed the way that these women were sitting and moving, that they obviously had had genital mutilation. And I asked them quietly when we got rid of the men out of the the tent, asked them, did you realize that most of the world don't actually mutilate or don't cut? They just call it cutting or sometimes they call it circumcision. Don't have circumcision amongst women. And they were aghast and horrified. But surely everybody has to do this. And then I was told by a very intelligent woman, but if women don't have circumcision, then their clitoris grows to to like a penis, much longer than a male penis. It dangles between their legs and they look so ugly. And other than take my clothes off, which I'm not prepared to do with a bunch of <laughs> Ethiopian women I've only just met, and sure, look, there's nothing there. <laughs> They've never seen a non-genitally mutilated woman. So they have no idea what they're talking about, and they buy into it. And then, of course, it's propagated by the women. It's the women who are the cutters, by and large, and they paid a very large amount of money for it. All of that reinforces the practice. So it's slowly decreasing but it's still massively rampant across the world, and especially in these countries. Part of me wants to think, if we could take a quick sidebar here, the way that that would reduce is through, I don't know, religious education and moral enlightenment. But my guess is the way that that's reducing is through capitalism and Hollywood movies and genes and Chinese goods produced cheaply and video games or something. I mean, do we have any, is there any data or is it too hard to separate out sort of the causes 
you know what I mean? It just seems like modernization is would be the actual vehicle, although I would prefer it to be Christ, you know? But it's the other way around, actually, because modernization is such a threat to most of these traditional countries. They will do anything other than modernize. They see the whole of Western modernization as the route to the devil, route to evil. They look at us and they're disgusted by us. I mean, a whole range of ways, our individualism, our lack of respect for the elderly, our lack of compassion, our lack of community nexus and mores and so on, are hell-bent on our own pleasure and so on, and they hate it. So in a way, they've got no, there's no attraction at all for a lot of these traditional societies. What they do want is our mobile phones. They really like those. But a lot of the rest of Western culture, they can leave alone completely without missing it. So I think what's very important is, is the religious kind of um, banning and shunning and education away from it. And that does take root. Because if you look at the seven, population of 7 billion on the planet, something like 5.9 billion are affiliated with some religion or another. And we don't often think about that in secularized society. So you get the religious formers, thinkers, leaders on board, and you're, you, you know, you're making progress. In the UK, we've made more progress amongst the Islamic population on FGM through a woman called Hiba Wadari, who is a Somalian um, woman who came to live in the UK and she was mutilated at the age of six. She found out what what had happened to her. She still remembers it all. She still has flashbacks. But in the age of about 28, she first came across the term female genital mutilation. And she realized, gosh, that's what happened to me. And then she began to tell her story. She's now in her 40s. She's a friend of mine. She goes around the country and she speaks to high-powered politicians, but also Islamic leaders saying, stop this practice. This is barbaric and you're brutally mutilating your children, your daughters. Let's stop it. And her book, Cut, has sold millions of copies, I mean, worldwide. And it's very, very influential. And her insistence that this has nothing to do with Islam, it's an aberration of Islam, is actually getting home. And I think that's what's important. So next up, we've got early and enforced marriage or child brides or whatever. I'm really curious what the stats are on this. I feel like I have no idea how prevalent this is. Right now, I mean, wherever you are in the world, there's child marriages going on. It's going on in the United States, of course. You've got far more child marriages than you have. There are in most of the other Western countries, partly because so many of your states don't have any minimum age for marriage. So technically, the technical age for marriage is 18. The UK, it's 16 if the parents consent. But the parental consent is actually not. It used to be. <laughs> the father used to march his daughter to the <clears throat> wedding because uh, she was pregnant and so on. That's what it was about. But it's not like now. But every three seconds, a girl under the age of 18 is married somewhere across the world. So that's the prevalence. So the United Nations Population Fund argues that every day, something like 45,000 girls are married under age. Wow. And that's the width of it. And, of course, it's predominantly in poorer countries, countries like Niger, where it's really very, very high statistics. And sometimes the girls are very young and they're joining, a, if technically a harem, they're the fourth wife to some wealthy man who is much older and they become his plaything. It's another word for child abuse. That's really what's going on. It's little girls being violated by much older men and being given permission to do that by the, the state's laws. And it's again, it's an appalling incident. But many parents part with their little girls in this sense so that um, because they're poor, they can't afford to keep another child. And the boys are useful. The girls aren't useful. So they're kind of sold off, really, as, as child marriages. 
Jeez Louise. I want to connect this back to the Old Testament here. I'm mm-hmm. getting a vibe that you and I have a different sense of how empowering versus how patriarchal and damaging towards women the Old Testament law is. And you almost surely know more than me, so I'm going to tread lightly here. But, you know, in past conversations, for instance, with Carolyn Custis James, who I'm sure you have come across in your guys' public work, and then in, in just other research I've done, there is a lot of stuff that gets swept under the rug in more popular conservative discourse that's in there. You know, if a woman is raped, if a virgin is raped, she doesn't get to prosecute the rapist. She has to marry her rapist, and then the rapist has to pay her dad some sum of money for the transfer of ownership, essentially. And that sounds a lot like, you know, the the few things we've been talking about recently. There are a bunch of laws like that, especially when, when women have been sexually violated. And I don't know. So I'm curious why, you know, but you said, actually, Old Testament is much kinder towards women, and there's none of this in Christianity. So I'm, I just want to kind of give you an opening here to sort of rebut what I just said or nuance it in some way or just explain how you see it. No, you're quite right. Um, there are discriminations against women and uh, especially in areas of sexual violence. But it's slightly more complicated than that because first you have to decide whether or not the woman was raped. And this is actually quite important. And so there are different rules as to whether the offence took place in a rural area or where the woman shouted out but nobody could hear her or in an urban area where she shouted out people would have heard her. So women who were raped in a rural area and plead, that, but they shouted and shouted and no help came, their plea against rape could be upheld and actually the man would be prosecuted. And we'll come on to that in a minute. In a rural area, in an urban area, if nobody heard her, they would say, well, she was actually not being raped because she was somehow giving consent. So she can't come along afterwards and said, but I screamed and you didn't hear because you didn't scream. We would have heard you. We were next door and so on. So there's all kinds of things built into the law and an attempt uh, to be fair, to be fair, to try and work out whether rape took place or not. Now, of course, it's not perfect because you can, a man can put his hand across a woman's mouth and she, she can scream for all she's worth, but nobody can hear her. So that, But then what is the penalty for rape? What is the penalty for adultery, first of all? If, it's, if she doesn't scream, then it's assumed to be adultery. It's uh, consensual sex between people. And if they're married, then it's adultery. Well, then they're both stoned, both the man and the woman. The man doesn't get off. The stoning isn't just for women. It is when you look at the Gospels, of course, and the woman is brought from by the Pharisees to Jesus and said, we caught her in the act of adultery. Okay, where's the guy? And if you go back to the law, they, they say what the law is, but they, they got the law wrong because the law is that both of them should have been stoned. So in that sense, there's equal punishments for men and women in the act of adultery and of violating their marriages. But the option for the girl to be married is actually given to the to the family. And that's to a certain extent to preserve to preserve her from then onwards, 
because nobody else is going to marry her. When she's been raped, she's been defiled. Yeah. And the, the idea that she's spoiled goods. So in a sense, it's a concession, but it's a horrible concession. And we're now seeing that concession, which is, has been there in the Middle East and the North African laws for, for generations, we're seeing that fall. We're seeing those laws repealed, which is you know, a case for a big hallelujah. So yeah, there are heaps of stuff in the Old Testament and in, uh, reflected in the Torah that are negative towards women. But I still think if you, I've just written another book called um, Women in a Patriarchal World, where you can see lots and lots of women who are actually in a different league and moving in a different kind of way in the Hebrew scriptures. And we ask, well, how did they get away with it? What was going on to give these women that level of empowerment? So it's a much more complicated picture. That's really all I'm saying. I think that's right. Well, first of all, I'm not going to disagree with you at all about Jesus's impact on all this stuff. I mean, I think that, I mean, my sort of naive sense, uh, not knowing all of sort of the major figures of world history, at least in the Western tradition, controlling for his time, Jesus might be the most feminist public figure ever. Um, so I'm, I'm with you there. I think that, and also it's worth making a, a distinction here. It sounds like what I'm trying to do is figure out all the disgusting things about the Old Testament. Um, but that's actually not generally, that's not the argument I'm trying to make when I'm talking about this. I'm, I'm arguing against a kind of complementarianism in the modern day that says, look, God set up a benevolent patriarchy. And I think that what I could agree with everything you just said and say, no, God is accommodating for a disgusting and brutal patriarchy and moving toward egalitarianism, basically. So the patriarchal thing, the woman is born into a shit situation. So she doesn't, she can't own anything. She's not worth any money. And any time that she gets raped and the person happens to put his hand over her face, well, she's going to be killed with that guy. And she, and so she might live in fear of basically never going into a place where that could happen because there would be no recourse. It's, it's like a, it's like a young black man walking in certain neighborhoods in the South in the, in the forties, right? It's like, just don't walk there because you don't have any rights, right? So we could argue, look, some of these laws are, are trying to modify that, at least some justice, like some way of believing the woman not sufficient. So I think that's maybe where I think now I'm on board with you and I was maybe doing some conflating in my own mind. I'm not trying to, I don't think I'm not, I don't mind the old Testament getting off the hook, so to speak in terms of it's better. You know, I do think there's some, there's some concerns there because the code of Hammurabi, which is predates it by 500 years or so doesn't see in some ways seems better. And in some ways seems retrograde from the Old Testament, but also I am perfectly happy to believe that God encouraged Hammurabi to come up with a better system for his people. I mean, I have no problem with that. So the main thing is that where it comes into modern discourse is complementarianism versus egalitarianism and people wanting to whitewash the stuff. And so that's that's where my hackles get up. I don't think that's the argument that you're making. No, not at all. In fact, I don't see any complementarianism in the in the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. I, I see it quite differently. I, I see masses and masses of difference. But um, what's going on is an unfolding revelation about God and about the nature of God's relationship with God's people. 
And um, and when by the time you get to the prophets, you're getting a very different relationship from from the book of Kings or certainly the book of Judges. Judges, you just see absolute mayhem uh, amongst the people of Israel doing what's right in their own eyes, which is absolutely wrong in everybody else's eyes. Um, if they have a glimmer of spiritual uh, concern about them, and certainly in God's eyes. But even in, in uh, the judges, I mean, it's very interesting that you get this extraordinary woman who stops the genocide effectively by yeah. just shouting over the parapet to the Israeli leader and saying, hang on a minute, this isn't right. And he stops everything and does it. And then you have many leading women. Um, and, of course, then you have many men who we celebrate, like David, who was actually a rapist. And we don't think about that. What was happening to Bathsheba? Well, she was married to somebody else, and he murders her husband, effectively, and rapes her. And because she's carrying his child, uh, he just carries her off and, and does that dastly uh, deed. So, you know, the people we I don't want to celebrate in the Old Testament that have always been celebrated because somehow they're, they image God or they're great leaders and so on. And we have to see the whole thing together. But we do have an unfolding revelation. And by the time you're getting to the minor prophets, you've got something really quite different about the nature of God and the, the pouring of the Holy Spirit on all flesh. Uh, where men and women are going to be prophesying together. And um, and it's it's a foretaste of what's going to come when Jesus comes and draws creation back to himself. You know, unfolding revelation of what God is really like and what God really wants for God's creatures is, that's about the best single phrase for the Bible I can come up with. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, and as a uh, open and relational theist, I think that continues to this day, moment by moment, doesn't stop with the Bible. That's what the Holy Spirit is. When people say, I have a low view of Scripture, I say, I'll see your low view of Scripture and raise you a high view of the Holy Spirit. I mean, right at the very beginning of the Bible, God is a, you know, we get henotheism. So God is just one God amongst many, many other gods, and they're all tribal gods. And we worship this God, and you worship that God, and so on. And it's bit by bit that they realize, no, 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 this is God of the entire universe, of the whole earth, you know. And it really has to be spelt out by St. Paul eventually, and, and Jesus before him, for the penny fully to drop. But it, you're getting there as the Old Testament progresses, but it's uh, it's unfolding, it's yeah. changing. And you get the maximalized version of that in John 1, 1 with the logos, and, and it's the whole thing is actually cosmic. It's the whole universe. Uh, and what's so interesting about that is the universe was much smaller to them, but it's we can apply it now to the universe that we know, and then that gets bonkers. So moving on in our parade of of being mired in shit, honor killings. Now, this is one that I don't feel like is really in the Judeo-Christian world. This one comes in other societies. Is that is that right? Yes, absolutely. There's very, very little of that in Hebrew scriptures and not, nothing at all in the New Testament. But it's very strongly practiced in Islam, in Hinduism, uh, in, even in Sikhism. Sikhs also. Uh, in fact, we have a leading a Sikh woman, woman from the Sikh community, who is doing her best to actually stop all shades of honor killings in the UK um, and of gatekeeping from people in her community, especially towards women. And she's getting an awful lot of flack for this too. Um, but yes, it's there. It's part of religion. It's part, again, usually against Westernism. It's usually clawing family members back into their own traditional. It happens an awful lot in Western countries uh, where you get the people who are perpetrating honor killings, closing ranks against the murderer, effectively, and uh, and actually making sure that they get off scot-free. 
So what, what exactly is an honor killing? I, I don't think yeah. I'm totally clear on that. No, it's when a woman or a man, it can be a man too, steps out of line and shames the family, brings shame upon the family. And the big question is, well, what brings shame upon the family? And in Pakistan, it's if you are an unmarried woman and you're talking to a, mar- to a man at a well, that's bringing shame upon the family. And for that, you can be stoned um, because then the suspicion surrounding you and so on. So it's anything that the family decides is shameful. And that's a scary thing. And there doesn't have to be any evidence and there doesn't even have to be any court trials. The family decides and then the community carries out the sentence. And stoning is still alive and well, thank you very much, in lots and lots of parts of Pakistan. Even today, women will have been stoned somewhere um, because they've stepped out of line. And what happens in Western countries, in the United States, in most of Europe and so on, is that these communities are there protecting um, their children against westernization. And some of them, if they want to become um, their own persons, if they want an education, if they want to have a career and so on, and not get married to the person already designed for them by the family, and usually it's a matter of money and that's not somebody that they want to marry, um, then their lives are in danger. And this, this woman I'm t- talking about, um, Jasminda, I mean, she spent most of the last 12 years since her own sister committed suicide because she was forced into a marriage and then violated in shame and honor attacks by the family. She's been committed to rooting this out of our own country, and, and it's an uphill struggle for her. But it's, it's the sense of shame. Um, we've had uh, shame killings in the UK. Parents are now in prison because they murdered their daughter because she didn't want to get married to the man back in Pakistan and she wanted to she wanted to be an educated girl. And so they suffocated a stuffed um, plastic down her throat until she died. It took eight years to convict them. And they only finally convicted them when her sister broke rank with the parents and told what she remembered that night of her death. And um, I don't know what it cost that sister to do that, but both all the siblings were threatened with death if they actually broke rank. That they did. So we know it's going on and it's insidious and it's horrendous. Um, and they're heavily protected by other people in the community. Something that's come up a, a couple times now is this idea of um, a lot of times what is motivating it, at least in the short term, is this fear and abhorrence of Western modernization. Yeah. And I got to be honest, I see some of that in Christian fundamentalism in the States. Now, obviously not with the same ferocity and generally not with the same amount of cultural and economic power to actually pull off this kind of stuff, nor, of course, necessarily the the actual same bad intentions to do harm. But the what we might call the psychological phenomenon or the basic emotional reaction, it really, really rhymes. It really seems very similar I'm wondering if you've thought about that and it, what you think we could learn from that connection, if, if you think that that's a real one. I do think it's a real one. And there are many things that are embedded in it. So first of all, nearly all of these traditions are patriarchal. So what the girls are doing is challenging male rule, male dominance, and the power of the father. That's it's worth noting one. Christian fundamentalism in America is, is without exception patriarchal as well. Yes, which which is right. interesting. You you would you might think if some kind of fundamentalism was correct, you would see uh, you would see a variety there, right? But there is no variety. They are 
every single type of fundamentalism is patriarchal the world the world over right yes and and that's the main thing and that's what holds it in place because the power of the patriarchs is is very powerful it's very heavy but secondly the, there's a um there's a sense that somehow or another their way of life, um, their outlook is somehow sacred or somehow close to the, the meaning of reality than what everybody else is doing. So there's a vested interest in in staying outside uh, the progression towards um, whatever it is, self-interest, uh, towards commercialism and so on. Uh, although having said that, of course, an awful lot of traditional Islamic groups are very, very commercialized at the heart of it. I mean, they, they really, um, they make a lot of money because they uh, group together to form their businesses and um, they try to buy, buy Islamic rules, but they don't always. I mean, sometimes there's a lot of cheating goes on and that also is a matter for issue here. But that's contained in the community you cheat people outside if you have to do uh, in order to get through so they're, they're patriarchal um, they're, they are contained they are held within traditions there are big demarcations between the insiders and the outsiders and there, there are rites of passage that exist for the insiders like female gentle mutilation, like circumcision um, like dress codes um, and you know even the veiling of women and all the rest of it are, are the insider dress uh, rites of passage written out in dress and then the forms of speech what you may say and how you may address people and all the rest of it and if any of these are violated then in a very real sense they become very worried so girls becoming like boys girls playing football uh, girls doing sporting activities are horrified uh, parents are horrified by these possibilities except where they themselves have become assimilated into the host community and have become more, much more westernized and open. So, it, And yet the traditional values, the traditional values of patriarchy, domesticated women looking after the men, bringing up boys predominantly and so on, and knowing their place are the ones that are um, heavily kind of endorsed. Obviously that stuff is, is worse outside of the States and the U.K., but it's funny you mentioned girls playing soccer, our word for football, because I actually just met back in November at the American Academy of Religion Conference a woman who uh, I'm going to be collaborating with because she's doing similar research to what I'm working on for my dissertation. And her story was growing up fundamentalist. And when she started playing soccer, she, she she's a gay woman now. Uh, but even back then, just playing soccer, she was getting shunned for it in the States. Yeah, uh, and so that's fun. funny. <laughs> I wouldn't have thought of that, but you reminded me of it. Okay, yeah. um, let's take a little break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about domestic violence, trafficking and prostitution. <laughs> but then we're also going to get to some other stuff about Christianity, causes of this stuff. It's not just going to be a parade of horrors, I promise. The most recent exclusive to patrons episode was a very interesting and kind of in-depth conversation about the question of whether how how we should talk about hearing the voice of god is that psychosis uh does hearing the voice of god act on human beings in a kind of delirium tremens way where it basically makes us go crazy always or sometimes or is that not a theologically appropriate way to think about it? Go through a bunch of different uh, um, angles. I'm talking with uh, Tasia Scrutton, 
a philosopher from the UK. So check that out if you're a patron. And if you aren't a patron and you'd like to hear that episode, you could become one at patreon.com slash Dan Koch. It's $5 a month. And it also includes access to the patron-only Facebook group for You Have Permission. All right, back to my conversation with Elaine. All right, Elaine, we're going to we're going to steal ourselves to get back into this uh, domestic violence. Now, this is something that people are pretty aware of everywhere. It's got to be more prevalent than we think it is. Right. So how bad how bad are things in terms of domestic violence worldwide? The prevalence in in the UK is one in three. Well, one in four in worldwide, it's one in three. And uh, in the United States, it's one in three point five, depending on the states and so on. But it, the big question is, what do we call domestic violence? What is it? Um, and usually we're talking about intimate partner violence. We're not talking about violence from the elderly or violence between siblings and so on. Well, that technically is all part of domestic violence. But intimate partner violence means any form of coercion, violation, abuse, constraining, restriction that actually involves some kind of physical aspect or mental aspect or emotional aspect. You can be an abuser without ever hitting your wife. Now, you can be an abuser in the way that you have a whole list of denials for her, the way that you restrict her behavior, the way that you undermine her. Well, big thing in the UK right now is gaslighting, where women, where men deliberately try to make their wives feel as if they're losing their mind, they're insane, uh, and imposing a whole pattern of, um, of attitudes and relationships on them that they don't want to go with. So that there's layers of it. We've got so much research on intimate partner violence, domestic violence now. It's uh, it's unbelievable. But the, the most physical form is, of course, marital rape and very often pulling women's hair out and disfiguring them and, and all the rest. And it is global. It's worldwide. And in some places, um, it's also includes acid attacks where women's faces are completely changed by acid being thrown in their faces and effectively their lives practically end then because from now on they have to stay with the abuser because nobody else is going to ever give them a job or give them any money and so on and they will be subject to the rest of their life to abuse and it's horrendous it's a form of violating um, commodifying and violating women to the extreme we're going to move a little quicker through some of these other ones because I really do want to talk about causes and psychology and and how you think Christianity plays into all of this. Uh, trafficking and prostitution. This is one that I think when people learn anything about it, they're often surprised how much trafficking goes on, even in their own mm-hmm. in their own countries. I've spent some time in Southeast Asia and specifically in Thailand. I mean, it's it's all but legal there. I mean, prostitution is basically legal. And it's so unregulated and it's it's frankly depressing uh, mm-hmm. to spend time in Bangkok or any of the other cities there and to see it. I don't know. What, what do you have to say about, about those issues? Yes. I mean, pe- people have often – Christians have often made the distinction between prostitution and, and trafficking. And we now uh, are fully aware that trafficking is wrong, that men and women are both trafficked, girls and boys are trafficked. But they're trafficked for different things. Boys are trafficked for forced labor, as are men, often for taking part in military combat and so on. Women are inevitably trafficked for sex, either domestic sex or brothels or um, whatever. And that's the predominant reason for trafficking women. So 
they're trafficked into prostitution. So then Christians often come along and say, well, this is wrong, let's stop the trafficking. And we've got lots of really first-class movements trying to highlight the uh, precedence of trafficking and, and get behind legislation and enactment and making sure that stops. International Justice Mission comes to mind. Exactly. And they're doing fabulous work. They really are in so many countries. But then Christians say, but prostitutes are, are immoral women who have actually chosen this as a way of life. It's a career. And I, I just deny that. And, um, and I'm with a member of a very large group of people in the UK who are working for a different model of uh, legislation about prostitution. And we, we favor the Nordic model, which says you don't criminalize a prostitute. You don't make it illegal to sell sex because then she is landed with this criminal um, record for the rest of her life. And she is never going to have any freedom. Even if she quits prostitution 10 years down the line, she's got so many convictions, she can't spend them, as it were. Yeah, you criminalize the Johns. You criminalize the people who are paying for sex only. And you criminalize it strongly. Yeah, absolutely. And now where where that's happened, it's concentrated the mind. I mean, because no guys want to be splashed over the front page of a newspaper or on social media as uh, one of these Johns who's buying sex, especially if he's you know well reputed in the neighborhood. So I think that would work. But I'm part of a very large group of women who are working with prostitutes in the UK. And, um, and there are some first-class women who become Christians through this process and are working with others and so on. So I think that there's, there's room afoot for changing the whole nature of prostitution. One of the women I know, Fiona Broadfoot, said, I've never met a happy hooker. And so the whole idea that there were some women who were career prostitutes who are making a living out of this because this is their chosen way, as though they've weighed up all the other options and decided, no, no, I won't go into HR or to nursing, I'll be a prostitute. That's, that's a myth, really. Most well, women going to prostitute for other reasons. I wanted to ask you about that because I live in Seattle and mm-hmm. uh, it's a liberal hub. And we have a like a weekly paper here, as many cities do in the States, that's far left. And there is a big movement, a lot of language. And a lot of my friends have taken up this language because it is kind of the, the liberal terminology of the moment. Uh, and I, I should say, because you don't know me, I am myself broadly liberal, politically speaking, although I uh, I do have pro-life. Pro-life is one of the things where I don't fit into that box. But um, you know, sex worker talk and sex workers' mm-hmm. rights and really trying to demystify it. I, I understand some of it is what you're saying, which is like, let's sort of demythologize that these are people. They are not objects. That's good. And you're talking about wanting to do that. And, and you're, the, the type of criminal reform you're talking about would do that in a sense. But I also – I spoke with Tina Shermer Sellers in our my first Purity Culture episode, and she's a sex therapist and uh, a professor and an author. And she basically thinks like, hey, there are people who choose to do this work. It is two adults making a consenting choice. And I pushed back against that. One of my pushbacks was with her own language that like these women tend to be much more vulnerable in their workplaces than other women do. And what woman could reasonably think, you know, even short of prostitution, I'm going to become a stripper. Okay, so I'm not necessarily going to have to have any kind of sex with anybody if we follow the rules. Who in their right mind could assume, yeah, I'll just go to work. I'll be the normal woman who like at one point in my career, someone will do something inappropriate and put their hand on my shoulder that I don't like. And otherwise, it'll be the same. I mean, that person would be crazy to think that that's what would happen in their place of work. And so I'm I'm having a hard time with this particular strain of thought that's very common in my own geographical place. 
Well, I, I was at a public meeting and I was arguing for the Nordic model and I was uh, quoting Fiona Broadfoot, who's, who'd never met a happy hooker. And a woman stood up and was very, very offended by what I'd just said and said, you, you are demeaning me. I'm a sex worker. I've chosen to be a sex worker. Um, I actually enjoy my work. Some of the guys are really quite nice. A lot of them aren't, but some of them are quite nice. I'm not afraid as long as I've got um, people around me who are supporting me in some way or another and watching my back and so on. Um, and I don't want you to speak like this as though I'm a victim of, of abuse and so on. So I then said, well, if and, and because this is my career, so we talked a little bit about the meaning of career. And I really said, if, you, if you're if telling me that you've weighed all of the options up and you've decided that this is the way you want to go forward, I have to accept that. You know, I don't know you. I have to accept that. But um, all, almost all the other women I've ever met don't have that profile. They've come for other reasons. She looked a bit doubtful at this point and said, well, thank you for saying that. So I said, but even if I accept what you say, can you now accept what I'm saying, that for every 10 of you, there are 10,000 women who do not want to be into prostitution and would give anything to get out of it. And can you agree with me that we need to show compassion to them? Well, she could. She was fabulous about it, actually, because she didn't classify herself as a victim and one of those, even though, and she didn't want me to either. Um, but actually, and there are women like that. There are women who are actually, if you like, um, have chosen to be prostitutes because it's the best of the things that are on offer for them. But they are tiny, tiny minority of the big process of people out there who are doing this because they have very few choices. And the the whole myth of choice, I mean, it's it's a way of being shoved into a way of life that then becomes so detrimental to you. So speaking of the kind of things that can happen in these kinds of workplaces, if we want to call them that, um, mm-hmm. the next one is rape. And yeah. this this is one that's getting a lot of attention these days, right? Harvey Weinstein and the Me Too movement. Yeah. Even in the Christian community, we've got the Church Too movement. Um, although most of that is not about rape, but more about unwanted touching and, well, I guess, mm-hmm. depending on how you want to classify it. But, you know, Paige mm-hmm. Patterson and, and Bill Hybels and stuff, rape has not gotten thrown around nearly as much as it did with Harvey Weinstein, for instance. So that's something people are thinking about. I, that one feels like in a good way, in a helpful way, it's gotten kind of more into the modern lexicon and consciousness of what constitutes rape. Do, do you agree with that? What, what, do you, what do you see moving there? Yes, I, I see that does constitute rape. And now we've changed our definitions of rape. It's no, it's no longer just penetration. It's actually um, any kind of forced tension and access to a woman's body that she is actually denying or doesn't want. I think in the whole area of rape, what's interesting in many ways, is the rape culture that surrounds all of this, that somehow gives rapists permission to be rapists. And it can go on, it can go through jokes. I've got scholars, students who are going around nightclubs where these guys, these so-called jokers, uh, funny men, are standing up and they will tell a few ordinary jokes and they'll get more and more seedy. And by the end, everybody will be laughing at rape. It's not funny. And if anybody challenges this, then they're going to, um, you know, in a sense, be very quickly carved up by the the so-called joker. And so I think rape culture, which says women are there to be raped, and many women enjoy being raped, and we are entitled as men to take women's bodies if that's what we want. Um, And women, you know, really, when they say no, they mean yes, and all the rest of it. I think when you get that as as an understanding of male-female relationships, quite deep in relationships, then it's quite hard to shift it, and it does give, opens the door to permission. 
that if women are there to be raped and therefore they've got to watch what they wear and they've got to give all the signals that they don't want to be raped, you can assume that if they're not giving those signals, then they do want to be raped. So let's rape them. And that's su such an incredibly awful perspective on women that that's the first thing we have to address and get rid of. So our last topic here before we go on to talking about causes, psychology, and bringing religion and Christianity explicitly into the conversation is war and sexual violence. And I will warn you, I'm going to bring in the Canaanite conquest here because I can't help it. But what do you want to say first about sexual violence in war in the modern world? Well, where does the modern world start? I mean, sure, you go sure. – if you go back even to the last century and the 1930s onwards, I mean, I visited the, the comfort women in Korea, in South Korea, and listened to their stories of what it was like to be kidnapped very often and taken to the um, Japanese military bases to serve the men, to comfort them, to make sure that they were fighting prowess. So a lot of it is about giving the men the stamina, the morale to go out there and conquer because he's just conquered a woman, he's just had sex with a woman. And that's kind of built into the the macho um, conqueror prowess thing. Um, I think it also happens after the war, right? Like that's the Viking yeah, trope. Yeah, and you right. see that in some films like – who we won yeah. that battle. I'm going into town to get right. my, my DS or whatever, you yeah. know. Yeah, exactly. Before and after. It's a, it's a process at both ends. But it's also a way of making sure in, in some countries that the whole – you can eradicate a whole generation of, um, of the enemy, make sure that the progeny is going to be yours and not theirs, and also inflict them with HIV AIDS. So there's layers and layers of it going on, and it, it is horrendous. Oh, man. You, you also just added another thing in that I have to put in from the, old, from the Canaanite genocide, which is leaving no children alive because yeah. they're the next generation and, and really the genocide of the Canaanites. Yes. I mean it, it's – I, I can't read those sections in the Old Testament. I can't read the violation of Canaan um, and the fact that, you know, it's, it all starts quite nicely through Rahab, this lovely prostitute who la lets the Israeli spies into her into her brothel, effectively, well, her inn. We don't know that anybody else was having sex in the inn to spy out the land. And then she gives them permission to come and eradicate her people so the whole the whole thing and then she's celebrated and we honor her and as a wonderful woman and you know, she's even praising the new testament james <laughs> heaps praise on her and she's praised for both her faith and her work so it's just really really interesting as to what's going on there and i suppose in a sense she was serving god through the people of israel but it was carnage. Yeah, that up. reads to me as just tribalism. I mean, I don't like yeah. if I got to choose between explanations for James praising Rahab and it, my choices are James is in some sense still tribalistic about his Jewish heritage or God really does like in certain circumstances for people to allow other nations to brutalize everyone in the city, including women and children. I'm going to go with tribalism. Yes, it was. It was a as a brutalist, um, was genocide itself. But at the same time, of course, the land, the Canaanites didn't weren't exterminated. I mean, they continue even long after the Israel Israelites are there. So they're living in uh, combination with each other, and a lot of the problems come continue because of the idolatry of the Canaanites and the god worship of the of the Israelites. Um, yeah, I and, mean, I know that's what the text says. I'm still pretty skeptical that what God ever really cares about is like, I don't know, mixture of religious systems 
to the point where he's so worried about it that like it would be better if everybody of the other religious system died. I just don't, you know, I can't really, I can't co-sign on that. I, I do think that God cares about our religious systems. I think mm-hmm. that's true. He cares about what we believe and what we do. Yeah, the, the fact that, I mean, I'm grateful that in the narrative, they actually don't eradicate them. Uh, but mm-hmm. I still think that the the impulse there, the moral of that story is still just the kind of the opposite of what God's actually like. No, I agree. I agree. And and who tells the story and why is it told? Uh, big, big questions of the Old Testament. And it's always the victors who write the history anyway. So that we have to take that into consideration. But it does caution a note about idolatry that we have to think that one through and personal integrity and lots of other things are woven into it. But it's one of those many passages of the Old Testament that I don't read very much <laughs> because I, I can't easily cope with it. <laughs> I'm going to put a pin in bringing Christianity back into this. I did want to talk about causes. One thing you say in the book is that, look, it's very difficult to pinpoint causes for this stuff. And I think that that makes sense. Having just gone through this litany of types of violence and some of the motivations are shared. It's that kind of patriarchal system. It is control of the male elites uh, that they'd like to keep, keep a keep control. There are economic factors and you go through sort of like four or five sort of various disciplines and you review what people have come up with as sort of this web of causes. We don't have time to go through all of those. And anyway, I'm most interested in psychology because that's what I'm studying. And so I would like to spend a few minutes what you found in the world of psychology. People sort of individual psychology, social psychology, connection to mental health issues, any of that. What's going on that leads to so much perpetuation of this violence against women? I think if you want to start with well, you, I don't think you can start with individual psychology because person's psychology comes from somewhere. And it's not that we're all born with psychological traits that are going to develop and dominate the rest of our lives. We're, we're born into a social context and we might have um, genetic propensities that lead us in certain kind of um, emotions and psychological ways of reacting but they're reinforced or denied or reshaped by the social context we're in. So I think when you start with family and family systems, I mean, there are some very, very dysfunctional families. And it, it, it's very obvious that if you have grown up watching um, domestic abuse in the home, watching your mother being violated, it's going to have some impact on your psychology and your sense of self and your psyche and all the rest of it. And you're going to have to sort out how you are going to live in the light of that. Whereas if you've been brought up by loving parents who never ever um, kind of quarreled or <laughs> hit one another or, or were always generous and warm spirits and always thought of the other, you will have a different kind of psyche, but you will still be your own person. So psychology is the interaction of the social context and one's own kind of nature, whatever that means, inside. But I, I think the dysfunctional family does produce an awful lot of problems with regard to handling violence, either a terror of violence and therefore withdrawal from relationships. And this is why the, some of the research on men in the UK, men who are violated, because men too are victims of intimate partner violence, very often come from homes where they have been victims in the home as well and where they've seen their mother violated. 
because they're fragile persons and they're timid and they want to do anything to gain love and regain love. And therefore, they will be violated sometimes by unscrupulous women. So we, it's not just a one-way system. So that, that's going on in terms of personal uh, dysfunctional families and, and pain and lack of love and lack of respect for the person and all the rest of it. But I think it's, there's, there's also the very opposite, and, and that is somehow the grandiose image, but the person who feels an imposter, uh, really self-loathing deep down in the psyche. But in, to, in order to cover that, um, you become a kind of bragger, you become an alpha male sometimes, you become a, a person who struts around and um, calls attention to all your facets and so on. And one of those facets is often um, violating women or triumphing over women or actually having women's scores and so on. And I think that in order to prove yourself as a proper man amongst other men, um, you develop a whole catalogue of psychological behaviours towards women, which uh, women pick up very quickly i mean i can sense one of these guys a mile off and i'm old now but uh you know in a sense you you can spot them because um be, and you keep away from them because they're not because you're afraid of them anymore but because they're troublesome people and you really don't want to be in that company i don't i don't want to have to help another guy to sort this out thanks you know i leave him to the therapists so um <laughs> in a whole range of ways the, the kind of strutters and postures are a case in their own and and they somehow feel that what they're doing is right because because of this sense of entitlement. I am who I want to be, and therefore I need to prove who I am, and and, and that's by doing what I want to do. And I think that's the Weinberg thing. I think that's where he is. You know, he's a very important man. Everybody needs to know about this, and therefore he can actually uh, catch a few women. But the so the the internal psychology. And of course, then there are myths that are brought into the whole um, military that the more women you violate, the stronger you are. You know, in a sense, you're getting some magic from right. this this act, and it yeah. keeps you going. There's layers of stuff like that. Let's talk about Christianity. We have talked a little bit about Hinduism and Islam; those have come up as we've spoken, uh, and we've talked a little bit about biblical Christianity, but not really a ton about Christianity today. Uh, I don't mean the magazine, I mean in today's times. But your final chapter of the book is called Christianity and Gender, A Fuller Picture. Can mm-hmm. you kind of sketch out that fuller picture for us here? I grew up um, as a young woman in a very secular context, um, secular university, studying philosophy, um, and surrounded by a lot of very articulate women uh, who were strong feminists and so on, who had a very little time for Christianity, because what they saw um, was religious systems, and they saw Christianity as part of those religious systems that simply provided a justification for keeping women down and keeping women under. And it was people like Mary Daly who said patriarchy is the prevailing um, religion of the entire planet, and therefore challenged Christianity to actually show that it wasn't, that it was different from Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism or anything else that was busily violating women. And her challenge wasn't taken up very well. I mean, people just denied it. But I think the onus is on us to show it rather than simply say, no, we're not like that. And I think we can show it. I mean, I, I, I've frequented enough um, organizations and groups and churches and so on to know where the spirit of God is there. You don't get, you don't get these violations and you don't get this patriarchy. Or if you do, you get them actually dealt with quickly, swiftly and properly in an order in which they need to be dealt with. 
but for having said that, um, it's still true that there's an awful lot of people who are misusing Christianity, uh, focusing on a few odd texts to justify their own predilections, their own attitude about themselves, their own attitude towards women and so on, and uh, are stuck there. They can't shift it. And this is what surprises me. As a younger woman, I thought you only had to tell the story, do the Bible properly, look at Jesus and women, look at the Gospels, look at where Paul was coming from and his liberation of women, because Paul liberates women all over the place, and tell the story as it should be told, and everybody would change. Christians would say, absolutely right, of course you're right. How have we got into this terrible dilemma of doing it the wrong way? And the world would be different, and we'd be strutting out there, showing everybody what it's like to live with equal relationships, with loving relationships, with mutually submissive relationships, and all the rest of it. I have to, I've spent the last 30 years telling the story, and you know they're, they're still there, these people who don't get it, and they're still in the church. So I'm, I'm aware of the fact that my feminist friends were partly right. They're partly right. There's a kind of hardness of heart very often. So I tend to link that to a nervous and anxious need for biblical inerrancy. So mm-hmm. there are parts where, you know, Paul says, I don't permit a woman to teach a man and whatever. And we can't, you know, so there, so one aspect is like, we still have to make sense of these passages. That's a... That's kind of the inerrancy, um, I don't know, motif. And then another motif is uh, maybe a little bit more sinister than that, which is, well, there's a lot of stuff about men and women being different and unspoken. I'm a man. It's better for me. And so, well, we'll talk about God's plan for men and women and how those are different for those are distinct from each other and ignore the fact that that's very convenient, right? Um, those are a couple things that I have picked up on. Yeah. I was once in Spokane in Washington talking to a women's breakfast. And um, this was some years ago. But, you know, around me were women judges, leaders, women attorneys, um, top medical professionals, uh, women running their own businesses and so on. And uh, I started to talk about the gospel. I just used the word, um, you know, when when you come to the gospel and this woman bursts out, oh, gospel. She says, gospel. I know all about this gospel. Um, she said, it's um, God loves you and has a terrible plan for your wife. <laughs> <laughs> and I couldn't even finish the sentence before they jumped on me. Um, but actually, we got into an interesting dialogue as a matter after that. And where did she get that from? Well, she got it from um, taking Paul out of context in the passages that he was going. I think that what we get in the scriptures, uh, there's no doubt at all, if you go through the Gospels, that Jesus is warning people all the time about building up false attitudes towards one another, towards other people, against discrimination, against racism, against gender, patriarchy, and so on. I mean, I think that you can't read the Gospels without seeing his penetration into the psyche of ordinary people and religious believers and trying to sort sort it out, trying to sort them out, challenging them as to where they were putting their faith in their heart and so on. And it was usually in themselves or in rituals or power, their own power, the power motif all the way through. So the liberation of the Gospels I've always found undeniable. But, and, but when most of the people who are, what are they, uh, high, we call them hierarchicalists here, you call them what? Um, oh, uh 
complementarians as opposed to egalitarians. Yeah. 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 Well, we complement, I suppose some people call them complementarians here, but they're not complementarians really. It's a, it's a hierarchy. So that's what we call it in the UK. Oh, that's beautiful. Can we change the terminology in the States to to match that? (laughs) But Most of them are actually looking at Paul and taking some things out of context. They're not asking what Paul is trying to do. And Paul is trying to do is got a whole bunch of people who are now Christians. Some of them come out of paganism, some out of Judaism. Uh, they're uh, young and old. They're rich and poor. They're men and fe- male and female, and so on. And he's trying to get them to accept the spirit of God, to meld them into one body. And Paul keeps falling back on this concept of body every time he gets. Um, he wants to really make a point about the church. He's back to body. Uh, whether it's, you know, Romans 12, um, 1 Corinthians or Ephesians or whatever. And when you get soaked in this body, you get this sense of mutuality and reciprocity and not, no hierarchy, but everybody having different gifts for different purposes and different reasons. No gender. You don't get gender in the body. I mean, it's it's gifting of the body. It's the need of the body. And it's the way in which every bit of the body needs every other bit of the body. And you can't have hierarchy in, in that body. It's just not there. But somehow or another, the uh, hierarchicalists miss all of the body teaching of Paul. And they go on to um, to the few passages where he's talking about the head of Christ, the head of uh, Christ is God, the head of man is woman, and so on. And, and again, it's the whole question of what, what is head, what is this word, carefully. There's layers of it that really need to be unpacked. And I, I think that partly because they've had the wrong teaching all the way through, they've got the wrong wrong interpretations of words like kephali. What does kephali mean, head? Um, well, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. And we've built a whole theology on a metaphor. It doesn't mean boss in the original Greek. It, it means source or it means um, uh, facilitation or something like that. And, and therefore, because we've identified head with boss, we see men as women's heads, therefore women's bosses, and, and uh, we've played that out in a kind of understanding of Scripture. Whereas if you think again about what Paul is saying in marriage in Ephesians 5, uh, or what he's saying in, in the church, um, <laughs> where he jolly well does allow women to teach because he allows Priscilla to teach and regards her as his companion in teaching, and she sorts Apollos' theology out and all the rest of it, uh, you get a completely different picture. And it's, a lot of it is about pitting Paul against what Paul says and what Paul does. And that's also what they don't do. What Paul says very often is restrain people, rein them in, especially the women who haven't got any learning. They've got to learn first. Let them learn in submission. Um, that's where he talks about submission to actually what Paul does. Well, he, he releases women, he releases Priscilla, he releases Phoebe to go and take the message to the Romans and all the rest of it. And I think that there's lots of things that we've misunderstood about the, the Pauline teaching. I, I see him as a great liberator, actually, far from uh, a restrainer. But it's very difficult to persuade people of that. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, there's a lot more we could say about that, but we don't have time. Uh, I'll point people to the Carolyn Custis James episode, which is uh, you have permission to question biblical patriarchy or challenge or critique or something. And then the episode with Bonnie Lewis, uh, you have permission to be egalitarian. If you want more on that, those came out last year. Um, My final question for you, Elaine, is someone who's moved by what we've talked about, especially sort of in the first two thirds of our conversation about this 
global epidemic, global pandemic of violence against women, which I am now 100% behind. You have convinced me with your reams of evidence. What should we do? Uh, how should my faith be changed by this information? How should my actions change going forward? You know, my charitable giving, my prayer practice, my church involvement, etc. It depends on whether you're a man or a woman. I'm sure you're a man. Uh, then in the UK, we've got this organization called Restored, and part of Restored, and it's a, an egalitarian organization to say within the church that we want to help relationships be restored in God. Um, but we want to come against violence against women in all its forms as Christians and point in a different direction and work with all of those people of goodwill, whatever their background or faith, um, to the same end. Um, and by and large, they, they allow us to do that. They're very happy to have a Christian voice like Restored working with them. But there's a male section of Restored, which is called um, First Man Standing. And they do all the things that um, I suppose progressive men do all across the world uh, when they're coming against uh, violence against women. Um, they they make certain promises, not not promises, but they they take certain precedences that if they're hearing sexist jokes, they stop them. They make they examine themselves as to how they're conducting their own relationships with women. What are their own attitudes? They pray about this a great deal, uh, and then they look at ways in which they can change the culture the male culture, so that it does reflect more respect and more uh, more openness, but also um, more understanding of who women are and are prepared to listen to who women are as they tell their own story. So you can have male organizations committed to this. It's quite different from the old promise keepers and things like that, because those are patriarchal organizations. Yeah. These are not. These are very different kinds of ones. Um, but also look at who's doing what. Look at what organizations you can support, where you can fund them. There's loads of organizations that are desperately needing funding, but that Christians are not giving in those organizations. You can look at those organizations working with prostitutes and so on. And there's, there's heaps and heaps to do. And then you can start legislating and getting people on legislators uh, with the UN and so on. But I think where Christians have to start is in our own midst, in our own communities, in our own churches, in our own gatherings, in our own neighborhoods and so on. Um, be beacons, you know, act properly in a way that respects one another and shows something more of the love in the Gospels that we need to be exuding in our culture today. In terms of organizations, I'll, I'll put a link to International Justice Mission yes, uh, in the show notes because they're doing really great work around this stuff. Actually, I want to run this by you. I just, um, because I have a baby coming at the time that we're recording this, he's due in about three weeks Oh, and uh, our, our first child. And um really glad he's a boy because he's going to bring <laughs> us material prosperity. No, <laughs> just kidding. Oh, so sad. Um, but I, I'm doing a little bit of my homework for school ahead of time. And so I, I've pre-written uh, this, this kind of TED Talk style presentation on hashtag church two. And uh -huh. one of the things they asked was for what can we do in response to this? And so I want to throw these things by you and see what <laughs> you think. I came up with basically three three things that people can do, uh, that individuals can do. The first is to attend churches that ordain women, which is mm -hmm. a, maybe a bigger deal in the States than it is in the UK. I'm not really sure what the percentages are over there. Uh, what do you think about that? Is that like a reasonable thing or, or should we stay? Uh, the other thing I say is, is um, push for conversations in your church. Okay. Press for these difficult conversations uh, about either ordaining women or sort of safe stuff for abuse victims and and reporting stuff like that 
What, what about those two things? Yes, I think those are very important. I mean, there have to be, you have to have egalitarians in traditional churches that are hierarchical as well, otherwise they don't change. I mean, I, I went to a church that didn't ordain women and wouldn't have had women in the pulpit for 20 years in North London, a big, big evangelical Anglican church. And I was on the PCC, the governing body and so on. And everybody knew my position. Uh, I didn't mind being there. I love that church. I I've supported the ministry and so on. Um, and then the crunch came, uh, was, and we'd been there about five, oh, maybe seven or eight years, when um, they needed, we were going to have this massive evangelistic outreach in a local leisure center reaching thousands of people. The question was who would preach? Because um, the, the clergy were only ever used to preaching to Christians. I mean, that, and they did good teaching, but that was it. So then somebody at the PCC meeting said, Elaine needs to preach there because she's very good at kind of spreading the word to massive crowds. And to my amazement, the vicar said, what a very good idea, Elaine. Would you be willing to take this on? I said, I would. So without any demur or anything, um, I took on the, this preaching for four or 5,000 people in this big leisure center, and it went well and so on. And then slowly but surely, the whole ethos of the church changed. Just for one act, I'd never raised my voice. I'd never made a big issue or anything. But I think that um, and there, was, there were many people like me in the church who stayed in that church because I'd stayed in the church. And so there was a tipping point, and it was able to change the whole nature and structure of, of the church. I mean, it's still a strong evangelical church. It's still conservative in many areas, but not in this any longer. So there's lots of things that we can do um, both in churches that do ordain women in churches that don't ordain women, but wherever we are, I think we have to love the other people in the church. If you're there just to be a campaigner, you're actually not doing the church business. You're there to worship, worship God in fellowship with others, brothers and sisters. <laughs> yeah, I really like that. And um, I talk often about staying in one's institution uh, for that very reason, as opposed to to taking off. But I, I do have one more thing that I that I put in action items, and I'm and I'm curious what you think because it's this is different, uh, and this is more common in the states. I think, like like we we, we don't have giant evangelical Anglican churches yeah. here <laughs> with that structure, right? So what I said was attend churches where women and or men who are unconnected to the particular church uh, or you know unrelated to the pastor have authority over the pastor. Yeah, yeah. So yes. Presbyterianism is like that. Anglicanism mm-hmm. is like that. But a lot of these Baptist churches are not. The yeah. um, And a lot of Reformed churches, the head pastor has basically complete control. Yeah, that's right. And that's in right. that situation, I think that I would recommend leaving. I, I don't yeah. know that you can do much. I mean, I guess you could you could push for, hey, uh, you. I mean, before leaving, you could push for, can we get a conversation going about getting a board of elders that mm-hmm. includes men and women that have some say. And if, you know, if the guy's like, no way, then mm-hmm. you might go, okay, this is a ticking time bomb. So I don't know. That is a little different, right? I'm wondering what you think about that. Yes, I, I, I would agree. I think do what you can in a church for as long as you can. And there's a time when you can't do any more, then it's time to go and do something somewhere else. Um, and it, what's interesting in the UK is um, some of our biggest churches are free independent churches, charismatic churches, massive, massive churches, hundreds of them. Um, and most of them, I would say something like 90 percent of them have women in eldership now, women who are preaching, women who are teaching, women who are prophesying and so on. Uh, there were one or two that don't. The New Frontiers International has still stayed uh, cool on that issue. They're not sure about women elders. 
but our, our, one of our sons goes to one of these churches and actually women preach there. They are elders, but they're not called elders. Um, so, you know, nobody cares about that. They want to stay within NFI because it's a lovely organization, um, but they have their own views about who may, whom God ordains in that particular context. So I, I think, think the spirit is moving in the UK and has been a long time on the gender issue, and it's far less problematic than it used to be, but I still come across people who are, feel that they're battling against a, a brick wall, they're banging the, and I, and I think at that stage then one has to go. But sooner or later these citadels fall, these citadels of resistance. And looking around our country now at some of the churches that, I mean, I would have been hesitant to even step inside. You go in now and it's full worship and you, anybody can be preaching, uh, whichever gender it is, and the whole attitude has changed, the whole atmosphere is different. I think one of the other things on your list, I mean, is how we bring up our boys. Um, what attitudes we give them. I mean, you've got your wee son. You, you know, you will be modeling something to him. You'll be molding his attitudes and so on. We've had three sons. Um, I would let them loose anywhere. They, they are incredibly feminist sons. They're just gorgeous, you know. And they have been homemakers with their children, uh, as well as uh, releasing their wives into what the you know their wives feel is their own calling and so on. And they're just lovely young men, and they've got sons. Um, our grandsons are also lovely young men. There's a sort of, and I think it's because respect for women is just built right through the whole family nexus, and they'll they'll come against anybody who kind of shows disrespect to women and let them know, um, and and always have done. I remember when our youngest son was, he was sort of a wee boy, and we were in this very, uh, very patriarchal church, and we had a visiting preacher on Mother's Day. Uh, Mothering Sunday, who was uh, preaching on the sermon, So What Do Our Mothers Do For Us? And um, this was a young preacher. He probably hadn't been long out of theological college. And I looked with horror as he bought this cardboard cutout of a life-size woman. And along with this cardboard cutout of a life-size woman came a whole load of props. And I looked at the props and he got a tea towel, a dishcloth, a rolling pin, an apron, a whole range of domestic things. And he called all the children to the front and he said, OK, what do our mothers do for us? And each of the child had to name something that their mother did for them. And they were allowed to pin it on the mother, the, this cardboard cutout. So the mother was being decked with an apron, with a rolling pin, with a washing machine, washing uh, cloth and so on, a whole range of things when it came to our youngest son. And so he said, and Caleb, what does your mother do for you? He says, she teaches philosophy. <laughs> and he had nothing to pin on the mother. And he was furious. My son was utterly furious that he didn't have anything he could pin on the mother. But the important thing is it made a point to that young man. And I said to him afterwards, he said, I'm terribly sorry. I really didn't get my, <laughs> my act together. I said, no, you didn't. <laughs> you have to realize that we've moved on a long way from that kind of mother in the church that we're, we're in now. So yeah. I think that instilling values in your kids, making them aware, in a, not in a heavy-handed way, but in a gentle way so that they can work their own way through life. <laughs> I was just talking about this with friends last night that um... – just thinking about the lived experience differential between someone born around 1950 and someone born around 2000 or born 2020, like my son will be born. And just the, you know, people, especially my generation, it has sort of been a, basically at the elbow of that massive shift uh, coming into adulthood as the information age has really taken hold. And yeah. I, I, have a, I have a sense that most of the way we do church is still at this point geared toward people born in 1950, not people born in 2000. 
But mm. my son may never even have to deal with that. By the time yeah. he's 20, church might be geared yeah. for people born in 2000. And wow. so even some of that might solve itself sort of yeah. generationally, you know? Yeah. That's very, very interesting. Yeah, I can't imagine what it – I think you're right. I mean, churches haven't changed much. We we sing different hymns from ones we sang when I was a girl. But and we and some of them, some of the churches I go to are like big auditorium nightclubs because they're all dark and there's flashing lights everywhere. Um, but actually, it hasn't changed that much. The ethos is the same underneath it all. It'd be very interesting to know how how the um, I suppose the kind of information age, the digitalia, and all the rest of it is going to affect the church deep down. I mean, and some of some of the young people I know don't go to church. They get all their Christian information from social media. Um, and even their worship patterns, they will gather together on social media to pray and stuff like this. So that is also very interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. And the, but the nightclub model, I mean, if you think of at least in the states, it's it's very easy because you've got the baby boomers, who right. are the generation that their parents fought in World War II. They are the ones who joined the Jesus movement, which becomes right. modern evangelicalism. They're right. the rock and rollers. I mean, they're the ones who really the nightclub whatever rock concert thing they're the ones who grew up on jefferson airplane and bob dylan not me right so in a sense they're the ones who listen to led zeppelin right like that's not so it's funny we think of that as being oh this is cool for the kids but like no it's cool when you were kids like you know what i mean i mean now i still go to rock concerts and i i like that for that kind of thing but that was not built by my generation That was built yeah, yeah. by my parents' generation. Yeah. They're the ones who first started going to rock concerts. Yeah. It's like this a is... boomer version of what kids want. <laughs> yeah. No, you're right. You're right. So how are we going to reach the digital um, people oh. who spend all their time on their their phones? And it's really their... interesting. I, I, I'm, I'm becoming more and more interested in that question. The, the one thing from my own work and from talking with people who are a part of the community of this show – I think the sort of the biggest highlight um, that I can put forward with younger people is they are most of us are just and especially younger than me are not convinced by claims of exclusivity to particular interpretations of this particular text in this tradition that that's absolute. We we just we have Wikipedia, man. We don't buy that for a second. Right. <laughs> yeah. We yeah. grew up with Wikipedia, or at least the younger people did, you know. That's right. And everything comes into that category. So how how do you deal with people who are gay? And um, that's a huge issue, you know, between the generations. And I, I have yet to meet, meet a young Christian um, under the age of 20 who thinks that, that, that we ought to, in some sense, censor um, or move away from or uh, ban um, people in same-sex relationships. And um, these are Christians. These are not just secular people. Uh, they can't understand what the problem is. They can't understand it. You know, they, they recognize there's something wrong with promiscuity, with having sex with before commitment and all the rest of it. But why can't committed people do the same? Um, and it's, you know, in a sense, you're, if you're trying to present arguments as we are in the Church of England, <laughs> for the opposite, we're running out of arguments, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, I saw that. That's a local, that's a recent news story. Well, all right, we've gotten off topic, but I got to say, Elaine, um, this conversation ended up being a lot more fun than I thought it would be, for sure. <laughs> Thank you. Good. And I think you were surprised that it was as irreverent as it was, or what, what were you surprised by? Yeah, I was surprised that... 
that it was a conversation. I mean, very often it hasn't been much of a conversation. And this has been interesting for me and quite stimulating. Yes, it's been fun. Well, I'll take that. Thank you very much. And as I said, there'll be a link to IJM. I'll also, of course, have a link to your book, Scars Across Humanity from IVP Academic. And thank you so much for your time and uh, have a great rest of your day. Yes, and all the best to your birth of your son. That's wonderful. (laughs) Thank you so much. Appreciate it. So in the show notes, I do have a link to Elaine's book, Scars Across Humanity, which we were talking about today. But also, she released a book about a year ago called Women in a Patriarchal World, and it's stories of strong women from the Bible. I also put that link up as kind of like a, it's a little bit of a, you know, counter to the first book. It's it's some, it's some a different kind of medicine, right? It's a, it's a way to, I don't know, get some hope from the biblical story. There's also a link to International Justice Mission, the organization we talked about. Um, and yeah, patreon.com slash Dan Koch if you'd like to join the Patreon. And we will see you guys next week.